Who remembers what their homework was? Ephesians 1 and 3. Zechariah 6. Romans 5. That's right. And so, and we're going to get uh, homework this evening too. Well, for this week. All right. So, um, let's pray and then let's get underway. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O Lord, for the way in which you work in the lives of your people, and we thank you especially for your covenant. It is a way in which, Lord, we can understand how we relate to you and how we are blessed by you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're good. So you've read your homework. You've got your... uh, So... We're now to week number three, the covenant of grace. Can everybody see that well enough, or do we need to shut half the lights off in here? Y'all all right? Okay. All right. So, we begin with... That was weak, folks. I had a good upfront row here. Where do we begin? See, you need to practice these things, because there's going to come a day where I'm going to bang on your window at 1.35. And say, where do we begin? Review. <laughs> All right, review. What is a covenant? Do you remember what is a covenant? It is an agreement or a contract, right? Between two parties, two or more persons. It is also a relationship, though, isn't it? It's more than just a contract, it's a relationship. It involves promises, but it is. More than a promise. What else? It is an oath-bound promise. And do you remember what our quote was about this? It is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Alright, you want to know how to impress your pastor? You see this slide? You're going to see this slide every week for about five weeks. So if you memorize that, then you just shout it out. You impress the pastor. That's good. So, how do we know what a covenant is? This is your 3 a.m. call question. What are the elements of a covenant? Those are our elements of a covenant. That is what we are looking for. Right? We're going to see these over and over and over again. We looked last week at the covenant of works. How do we not understand our Bibles? How do we not do study? Well, what we do is we know something is a covenant not just by looking at the word covenant in a concordance. If we just look for the word, would we find the covenant of works? No, because there's no word covenant there. We look to the substance of what is going on, right? And we find that substance in the, in the, which are, all right, very good. So, when we looked at this, what did we find? We looked for our elements. God and Adam are the parties. But you remember there's something distinct here, and that Adam represents all men. We said that was, he was our federal what? Head. That means that when Adam sinned, we all sinned. And when Adam fell, 
we all fell. Right? Adam represented us. What was the condition? It was obedience. What kind of obedience? Perfect personal obedience. What does that mean? Does that mean Adam could have done his best? Does that mean that Adam could have had evil bay for him? No. It means he was required to have perfect personal obedience. The promise was eternal life. That is specifically communion with God forever. And what, of course, was the penalty or the curse? Death. Death in three aspects. Spiritual death, which they experienced right at that moment. Physical death, which they began to experience, but it was not consummated for some time, right? And judicial death, which they came under. Those are our elements of the covenant of works. So, how can we call the covenant of works gracious? Right? You all know, what's, is there a difference between grace and works? Right? Is grace, grace, and is works, works? Right? But when we think about the covenant of works, there is a gracious aspect to it. In this. God gave Adam two things he was not obligated to do. First, he gave him the right to the promise upon fulfillment of the condition. He did not need to do that. Secondly, he gave Adam a relationship with himself. So what I want you to understand is, even though this is a covenant of works, and Adam had to work to earn the, the, the blessing, the promise... It was gracious of God to even enter into the covenant with him. He did not have to give him a promise. He did not have to reward him. He only, Adam already, already obeyed God for the sake of being the creature to the creator. So in this sense, when we talk about graciousness, another word that our confession uses is that God condescended. That God entered into this relationship with Adam that he did not need to. Do you understand that? Because what we don't want to be in a position of saying is that apart from God's initiative, God owes anything to anyone. It is only because God took the initiative and made the covenant and made the promise that Adam could expect the reward for his work. Everybody with me so far? Nod your heads. Very good. Okay, good. All right. So, by his breach of the covenant, that is, by eating the fruit of the tree, what happened to Adam? He fell into an estate of what? Sin and death and misery. There's the grave for you. Now, if you ever doubt the faithfulness of God, we have a covenant here, right? What was the condition? Perfect obedience. What was the penalty or curse? If you ever doubt the faithfulness of God, every time you see a hearse go by, you see God keeping His covenant. God always keeps His covenant. Okay? By His breach, Adam fell into this estate of sin and misery. All right. 
Does everybody understand now, so far, where we are with the covenant of works? You all ready to go forward to the second covenant? The second covenant is the covenant of grace. Now, again, remember, we didn't say that the covenant of works was completely without grace, but the covenant of grace is called so because its substance is gracious. It is a second covenant that God made with man in order to lift him out of the estate of sin and misery. So, what is the reason for the covenant of grace? Well, it really depends on your perspective. It's like two sides of a coin. It depends on how we're looking at this covenant of grace. Do we look at it from God's eternal perspective? Or do we look at it from our perspective in time? Okay, there are two aspects to this. First, let's take a look at the eternal aspect of this. In the eternal aspect, this is often called the covenant of redemption. This is a name for the covenant of grace that's given to encapsulate the eternal aspect of it, of what God is doing in eternity. The covenant of grace has an eternal aspect, and that is that it is made in the eternal decree of God. Right? Jesus Christ slain before what? The foundations of the world. Okay? The Lamb's book of life, written before to all time. Right? Does God have a beginning? No, and He doesn't have an end. So there is an eternal aspect to this covenant because God doesn't make things up on the fly, right? God knows all things, and He has decreed all things. If we want to get fancy about it, we can say God has decreed that Fred would sit there, right? He's decreed what I would say. He's decreed He'll win the next election. He's decreed the rising and falling of nations. He has also decreed salvation, Salvation is not an off-the-cuff response from God to man's mess-up. Okay? God did not have to play catch-up. Oh, Adam fell. I wasn't expecting that. Now what do I do? No. This was decreed in eternity past, in the eternal counsel of God. Our confession puts it this way. The Lord was pleased to make a second covenant commonly called the covenant of grace. God made this covenant because He desired to. Let me say that again. God made this covenant because He desired to. Not primarily because we needed it. The emphasis is not on man, but on God. God in His good pleasure, the Catechism says, from all eternity elected some to everlasting life. Again, God here is the initiator. God is the planner. God is the one who is in charge of the covenant. Now, you remember we said a covenant is an agreement between two or more persons, but that doesn't mean that the two or more persons have equal bargaining power. Right? So, in the covenant of redemption, we see this. This is a wonderful quote from J.C. Ryle. If you haven't had a chance to read J.C. Ryle, I highly recommend him to you. Wonderful book called Holiness. uh, Wonderful book called Addresses to Young Men. 
Though sin has abounded, grace has much more abounded. Yes, in the everlasting covenant of redemption, to which the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are parties, in the mediator of that covenant, Jesus Christ the righteous, perfect God and perfect man in one person, in the work that He did by dying for our sins and rising again for our justification. So here we have a covenant made in eternity past between the persons of the Trinity. And so we have God in the doctrine of election revealing His own triune covenant life. Now, if I ask you an honest question, you don't need to raise your hands, but how many of you, when you hear about election, especially for the first time, what you think is of some kind of sterile room in which arbitrarily God chooses and picks like this. With no thought to relationship and no thought to purpose. That's how election is often portrayed. But in the context of a covenant, we have a relationship here between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that election is the fruit of that relationship. Hold on. I skipped. It is the basis of... For the establishment and realization of the covenant outside of himself, with man, in the way of sin and grace, death and redemption. So God's covenant life within the Trinity expresses itself in redemption. And that's why redemption and salvation is to the glory of God's name. So, what is in a name? This covenant of redemption... Oftentimes, it will emphasize the relationship in the Trinity itself. And there it is called the Council of Peace. Sometimes, it's emphasizing the effect on man. And then it's called the Council of Salvation. Now, what was part of your homework assignment? What Old Testament book? All right, so you read this. So if you have your Bibles, turn with you to Zechariah. Chapter 6. Now, remember what's going on here in the book of Zechariah. What we have here is we have um, the Lord God speaking about the branch, that is, the, the, the one who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how He would come uh, into the temple, take the crown, be a king, um, Verse uh, And verse 12, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. For he shall branch out of this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on the throne. This is exactly what angel Gabriel announced to Zechariah and to Elizabeth and then Luke just picks up and takes that the Messiah would come and that he would reign on the throne of David that he would rebuild the temple of God and that temple of God is not just some physical building that temple of God is the body of Christ that is the temple of God that is where God is found And he shall sit and rule on his throne, and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Who's the priest? 
Christ. He is our high priest, Hebrews says, right? So he is a king and he is a priest and he is also a prophet declaring this. So this is a council of peace in the eternal decree of God. God is planning, decreeing, and then enacting a covenant relationship with a people who aren't even in existence yet, let alone fallen. So, we've talked about God's election, right? But how do we know it happens in a covenant? How do we know it's not a hospital room? How do we know that all the members of the Trinity are involved in this covenant? What do we look for? Our old friends. We have to look for the elements of a covenant. We look for what? That's right. So let's start. Parties. Who are the parties? Well, the first party is God the Father. We see this in Titus chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life. That's the promise, right? Which God, who never lies, promised when? Before the ages began. So what we have here is God promising eternal life, God the Father, before the ages began. The other party is God the Son. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as He chose us in Him, when? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. So what we have here is God the Father and God the Son coming to an agreement to save a people. The covenant of grace. Somebody who has a Bible, uh, who is willing to read a couple of passages, can I get two volunteers to read Ephesians 3, and then someone to read 2 Timothy. Riley, would you read the Ephesians 3 passage, 8 through 12, and who could read me 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10? Ed. understand here, hopefully you had a chance to read all of that in context in Ephesians 3. You understand what Paul is saying is, he's saying, I am preaching. That's a very much in time kind of thing, right? I am preaching. And I'm preaching something very specific. And I'm preaching something very specific to specific people, the Gentiles. But all of this that's being done is being done according to the eternal purpose and plan of God. So the salvation you are seeing here now and hearing was in the eternal decree of God. Second uh, Timothy one verses eight through ten. Paul writing to Timothy, 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearance of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. So Paul says, don't be ashamed about what? The testimony of our Lord. What's the testimony of our Lord? It's people walking around talking about the gospel, right? Very much now in time. All right? And God who saved us and called us, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace. When did this happen? In Christ Jesus before the ages began. But when has it been manifested? Now at this time. Okay? So this is part of the eternal purpose of God. Peter wraps all of this up into a bow for us. Because we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So, these are the ones who are elect. These are the ones who have been brought into the people of God, Peter, Peter will say later. The people who were not a part of the people of God, but now are a part of the people of God. And who does this? The foreknowledge of what? First, God the Father. In sanctification of the... For obedience to all three members of the Trinity. They are working out a salvation plan that they have come to and agreed to in a covenant before the beginning of time. Now, what are the conditions of this covenant? Well, there are three main ones, and they'll go along with what you might already know in terms of what our Lord Jesus Christ did. The first was that the Son had to assume human nature. Right When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son to be born a man, what? Under the law. Right? And so, we see this, and then in Hebrews chapter 2, we, it talks about Jesus taking on flesh. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that He, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons of glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then down in verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 15 of chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in order for salvation to be effected, the Son had to become man. Okay? The Son had to do another thing, and that is to perfectly obey the law of God. This is something that we often skip over. We go right from the manger to the cross. But we have to understand that the Son had to live a perfect life. Can I get some help here in John? Somebody, John 4, 34. Go ahead, Mary. 
John, could you read for me 530? I can do nothing on my own as I hear. I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Somebody read for me John 38. Dave. For I come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? So this is this is what we have here. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would Jesus have to do the will of God? He's God after all, right? Why would Jesus have to obey the law of God? Why would Jesus have to be born under the law? To fulfill what? To do what Adam didn't and couldn't. Yes. So... That's why we don't go from the manger to the cross. That's why Christ's obedience is important. Christ is obeying not only where Adam couldn't and didn't, Christ is obeying where you can't and don't. Every place that you've disobeyed, God looks at Jesus and He sees obedience. That's what that biblical image of the righteous robes being placed on us, What that means is, when sometime this week, because the pastor's not looking, you tell a little white lie, Jesus told the truth. Sometime this week, when you take something that you're sure, pretty sure nobody's going to miss, Jesus didn't. When you don't honor your Father in heaven, Jesus did. When you don't keep the Lord's Day, Jesus did. When you speak um, ill of others or of God, Jesus didn't. When you blaspheme, Jesus didn't. Every time that we disobey, Jesus obeyed. Is, is this what corresponds? Well, when we look at our salvation, we look at uh, Jesus atoned. But he, but we're all. Not only did he, was our sin covered, but there's an imputed righteousness. It's like it, the two. There's more than just that our sins are forgiven. There's a. So we have two aspects to salvation. This is Jesus's obedience, counted to our account. Yes, that's imputation. All right. What that means, what imputation means, is just what I said. That is. Every time Jesus obeyed, it's counted as you having obeyed. But there's more than that, right? Because Jesus doesn't come to us in a neutral position. We're not in the garden, are we? I don't think so, right? No trees. Check for me. Some wreaths, but no leaves. Right? He comes to us in a position of already having broken the covenant. Right? What happens when you break the covenant? Remember our friends, you get the curse, right? You get the penalty. So Jesus has to do what? Pay the penalty. Take the curse. He has to make atonement for sin. So in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we have Paul saying, He who knew no sin became sin. Why? For our sake, so we might become the righteousness of God. Right? If Yes, Chuck. 
He was accounted a sinner. Yes. There was no evil in him, but you have to remember here, this is an imputation. Okay? So, just like... Let me put it this way. Is there perfection in you? Is there any perfection in you right now? In God's eyes there is. Because it's an imputation. And so Jesus was accounted as a sinner and received the penalty for sin. But because He was not a sinner, He did not get His own penalty, did He? He got the penalty for us. That's also... Here's a, here's a bonus point for you. I'm going to add libin now. Um, that's part of the reason why He not only had to be man to assume human nature, but He had to be God because what did He need to be in order to pay that penalty? What kind of a penalty is it? It's an infinite penalty. For each person is infinite. And then for a multitude of people. So He had to be God to bear up under that wrath. Okay? That's correct. It's infinite in worth and value. Yes. In effectualness, it's purposed. Because it only applies to those who are what? Going, no, what's our class? It only applies to those who are what? In the covenant. If you're not in the covenant, it doesn't apply to you. I want you to think about election in those terms. You have to be in the covenant in order for it to apply to you. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about the covenant of grace in time. That will, But the point here is, is that God has for Himself a people. And Jesus died for a people. And Jesus knows His people. Isaiah tells us that our names are written on the palms of His hands. And so what we have here is God in eternity past, knowing already what it would take to redeem a people. And He says to the Son... You must assume human nature. You must live a perfect life and obey the law. And you must make atonement for sin. And Jesus says, yes, I will do it. This is kind of a far cry from modern, sentimental, secular religion that says, Jesus was born and he kind of stumbled around and did some good things and taught some people and sort of stumbled into salvation to be nice to people. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. He purposed for it to happen to him. He was willing in order to keep the covenant. No, God had planned this before the foundation of the world, Paul says. Um, and so the parties are before the, the foundation of the world, the conditions are before the foundation of the world, and then there's also promises. So what are the promises? The Father promises to assist the Son in the work of salvation. Can somebody read for me Isaiah chapter 42, verses 4 through 6? John, how about Isaiah chapter 50, 5 through 9? David Bergman. And then uh, Fred, how about Psalm 16, 10 and 11?
So you see there what God's doing? God's saying, what will be done? And God's saying, I will do this through you. I will give you as a covenant for the, for the nations. Isaiah chapter 50. And Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11. Now, what you have to understand here is, in this passage in the Psalms and in these passages in Isaiah, there is a person aspect to it. David's talking, right? Isaiah's talking. But it's, there's a messianic implication here. It's not just David talking. It's Jesus talking too. Right? This is why Peter, when he's preaching, will say that this is the reason why we know that the resurrection is true because God would not leave Jesus to the grave. He quotes that psalm. Okay? And so the, what's happening here is, is that the promises, first and foremost, for keeping this covenant, are that... The Father will assist the Son. He also promises to give to the Son a people. John chapter 6, where Jesus says, All those whom the Father has given will come to Me. Right. So the Father says, If you keep these conditions, if you assume human nature, and you obey the law, and you pay the atonement for sin, I will help you and I will give for you a people. They are yours, and you will be exalted. The name of Jesus is more highly exalted than what? The angels. Any other name, right? His throne lasts forever. He'll make His enemies His footstool. And so the promise is that the Son will be exalted as well. Now, this is some of the what we looked at here. The work of atonement. I have called you in righteousness. I will keep, take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations. God is saying He is going to assist in that work of atonement. And He will give the Son a people, and He will keep them safe for all eternity. All who come to the Father will be raised up on the last day, and none other. And so again, this is how we can understand this verse. Because... God has given to the Son a covenanted people. That's why they're kept. That's why they all come. It's not because they're smarter. It's not because they're better. It's not because they read more Bible. It's not because they're more compassionate. It's because God has given them to the Son. If you are in the Son, it has absolutely nothing to do with you. It has to do most fundamentally with the fact that the Father, out of His own good pleasure and wisdom, from all eternity, decreed to give you as a part of the people to the Son for His work that He would accomplish. 
And so when we think about salvation in a Trinitarian sense, it takes us out of the picture. We have nothing to boast. This is why Paul says, I have nothing to boast in. What are you looking at me for? That's what he says. Then here, of course, the Son will be exalted above every other. And this is Old Testament and New Testament. Zechariah chapter 9. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess. What does every mean? Every. What are the sinners in hell going to be doing? Bending the knee and bowing. They will. Because Jesus will be exalted above all. Now, that's the eternal aspect. Okay? We need to understand that to understand the in time aspect. Okay? Because salvation, while it is grounded in eternity, we don't sit and contemplate our election, do we? I advise you not to. Okay? We live in the here and the now. And the eternal aspect of the covenant of grace has an in-time aspect as well. In time, it has to resolve the problem caused by the fall. We're sinners. We sin. We're dying. We're miserable. Right? That is a real problem. And it needs to be resolved in time. The Confession Catechism understands this as well. It says, man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant. That is which covenant? The covenant of works. Man cannot keep that covenant. Right? Anybody here want to try and keep the covenant of works? Try and keep it for five minutes. Come on, all you need to do is have perfect personal obedience in thought, word, and deed. Come on. Tough crowd. Incapable. Why is that important to understand? Because what are we often tempted to think and what does the world around us say? Well, hey, I'm not Hitler. Well, hey, I'm pretty nice. I'm good to old ladies. I help them walk them across the street like a Boy Scout. Well, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. What do you need? Perfect personal obedience. Here's an analogy for you I've used before. Who do you think can throw a baseball better? Me or Roger Clemens? We're going to have a contest. Thank you. We're going to have a contest. We're going to see, and the winner of the contest is the first one of us to hit the moon with a baseball. Who are you going to bet on? Let me tell you right now, if you bet on me, you're not very smart. If you bet on Roger Clemens, you're still not very smart. Because are either of us going to hit the moon with a baseball? No. So we can't have this kind of, well, I'm just a little bit better than somebody who is less than me, so I can look good. Perfect personal obedience. And in this, God delivers them out of the estate of sin and misery and brings them into salvation by a Redeemer. This is the covenant of grace in time. Now, again, we go back to our friends, the elements. Who are the parties? God the Father. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be, to, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is God entering into covenant with the people. 
The other party is God the Son. Now, the promises were made to Abraham, Paul says, and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Have you ever wondered why Paul makes such a big deal of the plural there? It's an actual grammatical issue. It's singular in the Hebrew, in Genesis, not plural. And Paul makes this point because Jesus is the one with whom the covenant is made. That's why Hebrews calls him the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, wait a minute here. If God, the Father, makes a covenant of grace in time with God, the Son, how do I benefit? What does that remind you of? Did you sin in the Garden of Eden? Yes, you did. Why? Because... The covenant was made with Adam as what? Our representative, our federal head. Are you holy and perfect and righteous? In Christ, yes. Why? Christ is our representative. That's how salvation happens. It's not that God feels sorry for us. It's not that, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not so good, we're not so nice, but you know, because Jesus loves us, God will forgive us. No, we are forgiven and perfect and obedient and holy in God's sight because Jesus is. He is our representative. Everything that He did, we get. Just like with Adam. Adam earned death and sin and misery and backaches and bunions and we get it all. And Jesus earned life and happiness, and communion with God. And we earn it all in Him. Stay with me. So what are these promises, generally speaking, that God will be our God and that we will be His people? This is the gospel that the the apostles brought in Acts 13. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, what? Do you see that odd phrase? Appointed to eternal life, do what? Is that eternal? Yes. Is it in time? Yes. It's the covenant of grace. The people that were given to the Son are His people. And they will believe in time. Because they are a part of the people of God. You see, there's two aspects to this. There's the eternal decree, but there is its execution in time. And the parties here are the Father and the Son, but here in time, the Son acts as the representative of, for His people. So what else do we get? We get a new heart, a new life. We see this in Ezekiel 36, very famous passage. God takes out the heart of stone and He gives us a heart of flesh. We get the forgiveness of sins. We get sanctification. We get illumination. What is the condition 
of this aspect of the covenant. It is faith in Christ. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but should have eternal life. That is the condition of being in the covenant of grace. You must have faith in Christ. But remember, there's the eternal aspect too. Who will have faith in Christ? Those whom the Father has given. How will they have faith in Christ? He will give them a new heart. You see? So, there is a working out of God's holy elect purpose in time, and we cannot lose that. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon had a man who was um, overanalyzing things, trying to think through things, said to Spurgeon, he said, Pastor, please help me to understand my election. I can't get my arms around this. I don't know if I'm elect. How can I figure out if I'm elect? Spurgeon looked right at him and he said, you want to know if you're elect? He said, well, yeah. He said, choose Christ. Then you'll know you're elect. Stop trying to contemplate your election. If you choose Christ, you must be elect. Because you're a part of the covenant people of God. Don't be fretting yourself about the eternal counsel and will of God. Obey God's word. You had a question? Yes? Because God has promised it in His Word that when He glorifies us, we will be not just counted perfect, we will be made perfect. That's glorification. That's a good question. That's the consummation of the covenant. We will be made exactly like Jesus. That's correct. We will be in the position that Adam would have been in had he obeyed. He would have been confirmed in the covenant never to fall again. That's where we're headed, down that road. Amen. I mean, and that's the bottom line. If I say, you know, we, I can theologize about it, but the bottom line of it is it's in God's Word. God promises in His Word that to me. Because if you believe with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be what? How will you be saved? Believe. What else? Confess. Who believes and confesses? Those who are God's. Those whom the Son has died for. Those whom God has given a new heart. Those who are a part of the covenant people of God. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you are also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of whom? Who raised Him from the dead. You see, this is the biggest difficulty we have. We think of faith as our thing. That we do. And it is not. Faith comes from God. It is the gift of God. But at the same time, it is the gift of God and the work of God in us. And we must act. Because God works in us and through us. That is how the Spirit works. And so there must be a real and personal profession and expression of faith. But the only way we can do that is by the work of God. We can't conjure it up ourselves. You're either in covenant or you're out of covenant. So, 
there's another condition. And that is another's obedience. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. We have to understand, faith is not a thing. Faith is not something we carry around with us. Let me put it to you this way. Faith does not save you. Jesus saves you. Faith grabs hold of Christ and His works, His obedience, His substitutionary death, and applies it to us. Now, why does this happen? Have you ever thought about that? Why is that the condition of salvation? But why? Why not something else? Why not skip rope for an hour and a half? Why not um, do good deeds? Why not swim the ocean? This is the condition, most basically and fundamentally, because God established it. God gives it to us. God established it in the making of His covenant. If I put it this way, God makes the rules. God makes the condition. He made an agreement with Jesus Christ as our representative. He laid down the conditions. He laid down the promises that come from obeying the conditions. That's why it's a part of the relationship of God. It's not arbitrary. It doesn't change with time. All right, let's summarize. We're out of time. The covenant of grace. The covenant of grace, the covenant is one covenant and it occurs throughout all of the Bible. We're going to see this in the next three weeks to come. Next week, we're going to look at the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. We're going to give it some flesh. We're going to see it with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses. Then we're going to see it in the New Testament. And then finally, we will see it in a bridge between the Old and the New So, I want you to think visually about this with me. There is the covenant of redemption which occurs in eternity past. This is made between the Father and the Son. And then there is the covenant of works that God makes with whom? Adam, as our representative. And the essence of that covenant is, do this and you will live. Everyone who is outside of Jesus Christ is in the covenant of works. Do this and you shall live. All mankind continues in this covenant. God demands perfect personal obedience from everyone in the world. If they do not get perfect and personal obedience, they are lost. The only way out of this... You cannot say, well, God, how about if I give you a 98% obedience? How about if I give you a 75? How about if I give you a really good 83? No. The only way out is in the covenant of grace. And in that covenant of grace... Oh, go back one. Come on, I went too quick. The Father agrees to accept the works of the Son as fulfilling the works of the covenant of works for us. Do you understand that? So let me give you a tagline that will, maybe you could wrap your mind around. Are you saved by works? 
Yes, the work of Jesus Christ. Yes is the answer. You're saved by Jesus' works. Now, we're saved by grace because those works only apply to us by God's grace. There's no reason I should get Jesus' benefits. None at all. He earned them for himself. But I am saved by works. So if you think about this last visual image, think of the covenant of works as you psalmist image, the miry pit, the tar pit. And God comes down and he plucks us up out of that covenant, cleans us off, and puts us down in the covenant of grace. He says, you're no longer under Adam. You no longer have sin and death and misery. You are now under Jesus with life and blessedness. This is how God works. Now, I'm giving you the big picture theology of this. In the weeks to come, we're going to look at it from the perspective of the Scriptures and how God explains this to us. Because this one covenant of grace is exactly the same from Genesis 3.15 to Revelation 22. But it doesn't look the same. We get to know it better and better and more and more full as we go throughout the Bible. And we're going to see that in the next couple of weeks.